Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Smithsonian Magazine, and we're going to get things started off with an opinion piece from Parsons, Kansas, and the Parsons Sun newspaper. The title is, It's Time to Value the Gift of a Public Education. It was written by Sharon Erorio and was published December 23, 2022. Traditionally during the holidays, thoughtful moments of gratitude, goodwill, and peace push away the frenzy of gift-giving and parties with fancy food. We take stock of the past and look forward to the coming year. Recent months have seen worried talk about the fragility of Kansas public schools. Critics point to deep structural weaknesses that emerge from lack of accountability. Because we live in a democratic society, public school policy is always an open discussion and not value neutral. Our schools exist amid dissent about their effectiveness and always have. Continuously attacked but surprisingly resilient, Kansas schools remain strong due to unfaltering dedication to their core mission, to grow students' knowledge and prepare them for citizenship. The beginning of a new year seems the right time to reflect on the power of public education for positive change and how the past foreshadows a crucial challenge to Kansas schools today. As most Kansans know, in 1951, Oliver Brown filed suit against the Topeka Board of Education because his daughter, Linda Brown, was denied admission to Topeka's white-only schools. The resulting U.S. Supreme Court decision ruled separate was not equal education and ended racial segregation in schools across the nation. Despite tenacious resistance to desegregation and enrollment flight to Kansas suburbs, the impact of the Brown v. Board of Education eventually opened all public places. Today, about 90% of students in Kansas attend racially integrated public schools, and graduation rates are up since the 1950s when they hovered around 50% nationally. In 2019, U.S. Department of Education statistics showed graduation rates for black students nationally at 79.6% and in Kansas at 80%. The graduation rate for all students in Kansas was 87.23. According to the last census, the Kansas population is 86% white. Yet, from Dodge City to Wichita to Johnson County, Kansas is becoming an increasingly multicultural and multiracial society. Kansas schools now face a different struggle, one that deals less with attendance than the guarantee of equal educational opportunities. Lessons learned from the Brown decision show that positive social change is possible, but the lessons appear to have little influence on the disrespectful and disruptive Kansas youth who recently mocked their peers of another race at a sports event or those who brought guns to school or who now exchange insults in classrooms and talk back to teachers. Though a small minority, the students who act out are visible symptoms of the deeper, largely unspoken but hard-to-eradicate racism and disrespect of others that lingers in our society. Racism and lack of acceptance towards others' culture, religion, disability, age, or gender can be found throughout Kansas and the nation. Teachers and administrators are striving not to indoctrinate but provide inclusiveness for students. Schools work to bring us together through creating sound school-wide safety measures, communicating the worth of all individuals in teaching history that shows both the positive and negative aspects of our shared past. Public education, arguably, is the most unifying and important of all American institutions. In a country built on individual rights, 
Free Public Education is the single nationwide institution that offers all children 12-plus years of schooling to enhance their personal lives and prepare them to be responsible citizens. Public schools are the dominant form of education for Kansas students, a powerful influence on the future of the state. It's time to appreciate the gift of public education. Sharon Erorio is Dean Emerita at the Wichita State University College of Education. That was a reading of the opinion piece, It's Time to Value the Gift of a Public Education. It was written by Sharon Erorio, capital I-O-R-I-O. It was published in the Parson Sun newspaper of southeastern Kansas on December 23, 2022. The next reading on today's African American Hour is about research done by a historian at the University of Kansas. The title of the article is The Forgotten Revolution. Deep in the archives, a historian rescues the tale of Panama's brave maroons. It was written by Melba Newsom and appeared in the January-February 2023 edition of Smithsonian Magazine. A dogged U.S. scholar has upended the conventional wisdom about enslaved Africans in the New World by demonstrating that the first successful slave uprising in the Americas occurred in Panama, not in Haiti as many have long believed. Robert Schwaller, a University of Kansas historian, discovered new details about the Panama uprising at the General Archive of the Indies, a repository in Seville, Spain, devoted to the Spanish Empire in the Americas and Asia. The papers, including letters, royal edicts, and court documents, shed new light on several groups of enslaved Africans in and around what is now the Panamanian province of Cologne. The Spanish explorer Vasco Núñez del Balboa first transported captured Africans to Panama in 1513. Around a decade later, the enslaved population began to flee captivity, first individually and then in groups. As the ranks of the self-emancipated grew, they conducted raids on Spanish cities and highways to gain riches and to free fellow Africans. These Maroons, an English term used for formerly enslaved people who had freed themselves, tied up Spanish forces in a costly guerrilla war for decades, eventually forcing a negotiated peace. In 1579, Panama's high court granted permanent freedom to resistance leader Macambique, capital M-A-N-B-I-Q-U-E, and his community of Maroons throughout Spain's territories in the Americas. The decree, long overlooked by historians, marks the success of this series of uprisings which took place more than two centuries before Toussaint Louverture helped lead the Haitian Revolution. The success of Panama's Maroons established a precedent for securing freedom and autonomy that other African Maroons would repeat in the centuries to come in Mexico, Colombia, Ecuador, and Jamaica, says Schwaller, who details his research in a 2021 book, African Maroons in 16th Century Panama, A History in Documents. The 16th century African freedom fighters formed self-governing settlements in the regions around the Spanish port of Portobello. More than four centuries later, the Portobello community lives on. The amazing thing about Portobello is that the people who live there today have a direct connection to the people who came from Congo and Angola, many of whom were maroon, Schwaller says. They know their history even though few outsiders do. 
Other scholars, meanwhile, have been celebrating Schwaller's finds. Ben Vincent III, a historian and executive vice president at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, says Schwaller's exceptional work has engineered new pathways for teaching about rebellion, as well as understanding how peace was brokered and how different imperial aims created space for African resistance. There are two images that accompany this reading. The first is a modern color picture of the town of Portobello. There is a bay with motorboats and sailboats out in the water, and it is surrounded by houses and businesses that come up to the water with forest and mountains in the background. The next image that accompanies this story is taken from an old map. It shows that same area that has masted ships anchored out in the bay with a few palm trees and just a few houses and huts sitting next to the water. The caption of this image reads, The 17th century fort at Portobello, built by enslaved laborers, overlooks the bay area where some of the earliest Maroons settled after gaining their freedom. That was a reading of the article, The Forgotten Revolution. Deep in the archives, a historian rescues the tale of Panama's brave Maroons. It was written by Melba Newsom and appeared in the January-slash-February edition of Smithsonian Magazine. The next reading on today's African American Hour is a book review from the December 29, 2022 edition of the Wall Street Journal. The title of the article is A Holy War, written by Edward Costner. The title of the book is American Caliph by Shahan Mufti, capital S-H-A-H-A-N, capital M-U-F-T-I. Ever since emancipation, blacks in America have oscillated between the desire for integration with white society and, when spurned, the appeal of separation. The most conspicuous of the separatists has been the Nation of Islam, the black Muslim sect founded by a visionary called Master Fard Muhammad, and after Fard's disappearance in 1934, transformed into a movement by Elijah Muhammad and his eloquent disciple, the martyred Malcolm X. But for all their stress on self-reliance, the aura of violence has always clung to the black Muslims. Elijah's hitmen gunned down Malcolm X in Harlem in 1965 after he broke with the leader. And a dozen years later, a holy war of sorts among the group's adherents and a breakaway Muslim sect culminated in a set of deadly sieges in Washington, D.C., one of the most violent incidents ever in the nation's capital. The spark that ignited it all was a big-budget movie about the historical Prophet Muhammad, supported by the black Muslims, but damned as blasphemous by an angry apostate. Long forgotten, this grotesque episode is reanimated by Shahan Mufti, a veteran journalist in American Caliph, the true story of a Muslim mystic, a Hollywood epic, and the 1977 siege of Washington, D.C. Meticulously detailed and fluently written, the book mixes terrifying scenes from the hostage-taking sieges with sophisticated explanations of the sectarian feuds among rival Muslim black nationalists. The fulcrum of Mr. Mufti's compelling story is a one-time jazz drummer and army vet named Hamas Abdul Khalis, born Ernest Timothy McGee in 1922 in Gary, Indiana, who was attracted to the black Muslims through personal acquaintance with Malcolm X. He rose in the ranks of the nation's Chicago headquarters 
then grew disenchanted with Elijah Muhammad's brand of Islam and in the late 1950s started his own purist splinter sect, the Hanafi movement. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a young NBA star, later became Khalees' prime disciple and bankroller, setting him up with a Hanafi center in Washington, D.C. In the early 1970s, Khalees began disparaging Fard and Elijah Muhammad in letters to the Nation of Islam centers around the country. In 1973, Elijah Muhammad retaliated as he had against Malcolm X. While Khalees was away, eight members of the Black Mafia affiliated with the Nation of Islam invaded the Hanafi Center, where Khalees lived with two of his three wives and their children. The intruders murdered four of the children and drowned a nine-day-old infant in a basin. They killed Khalees' grown son, Daoud, and a Hanafi Center staffer with shots to the head. Khalees' wife, Bibi, and grown daughter, Amina, were shot repeatedly but survived. The killers were never properly brought to justice, which only further inflamed Khalees, who was still nursing a grudge against the U.S. government for denying him certain G.I. Bill benefits. But what now triggered Khalees, Mr. Mufti writes, was word that a Technicolor epic about the Prophet Muhammad was about to premiere in New York and Los Angeles. Strict Islam forbids showing the Prophet's image, but the script had been vetted by Arab scholars and the film's director, a Syrian immigrant named Mustafa Akkad, represented Muhammad only using subjective camera technique as the camera's point of view. Still, Khalees felt it was his mission as a devout Sunni Muslim to make sure the film was never shown. What's more, Khalees saw his crusade as the key to his ultimate goal, to be proclaimed caliph of a resurgent Islam in the West. He hatched a scene to hold the film ransom for hostages he would seize in D.C. with a band of armed comrades. On the morning of March 9, 1977, Khalees struck. A hater of Zionists, he first took over the international headquarters of B'nai B'rith, the Jewish communal organization. Inside, seven Hanafis with long guns and machetes screamed death threats at 128 hostages bound and heaped on the floor throughout the building. When Rabbi Samuel Fishman was brought to him at gunpoint, Mr. Mufti writes, Khalees received him by ramming the butt of his gun right into Fishman's face. Fishman's glasses were smashed and the blood ran down his face. Next, three Hanafis entered Washington's Islamic Center, seizing the mosque director, Muhammad Abdul Raouf, and a dozen others. Finally, two more Hanafis commandeered D.C. City Hall, known as the District Building, killing a reporter and wounding two, a police officer and then-councilman Marion Barry. The author is at his best as his narrative cuts between three locales, the siege sites where the Hanafis took two lives and terrorized their hostages, the police command center where top cops and feds debated strategies to end the sieges, and the Rivoli Theater in New York where the movie was set to premiere. With a Benai Brith hostage as his secretary, Khalees talked nonstop on two phones with police, the media, and through Raouf, foreign diplomats. The premiere of the movie was quickly canceled, and then a daring plan evolved to have the ambassadors of Egypt, Iran, and Pakistan meet with Khalees in the Benai Brith lobby. The envoys persuaded Khalees that his assault misread the will of Allah, and the authorities offered a deal in which he would be freed on his own recognizance until his trial many months hence. With that, the siege of Washington ended some 40 hours after it began, and the surviving hostages were freed, some emotionally scarred for life. After an inevitably theatrical trial, 
Khalees and two henchmen were found guilty of murder in the second degree and sentenced to hundreds of years in federal prison. The film, Mohammed, Messenger of God, at last opened in the U.S. and later around the world. Despite all the priceless publicity, the $17 million epic proved to be an epic box office bomb. Khalees never achieved his goal of becoming the American Caliph, but for a time he was the most famous Muslim in the United States. Forever an inspiration to terrorists, he was shuttled around the federal prison system before he died, white-bearded, blind, and aged 81, on November 13, 2003. The author of this book review, Mr. Costner, is the former editor of Newsweek, New York Magazine, Esquire, and the New York Daily News. That was the book review of the book American Caliph by Shahan Mufti. The title of the article was A Holy War in Hollywood by Edward Costner. It appeared in the December 29, 2022 edition of the Wall Street Journal. The next story in today's program is an obituary from the New York Times and its nytimes.com website. The title is Charlene Mitchell, 92, Dies, First Black Woman to Run for President. It was written by Clay Risen and published December 23, 2022. Charlene Mitchell, who was the Communist Party's presidential nominee in 1968, became the first black woman to run for the White House died on December 14th in Manhattan. She was 92. Her death in a nursing home was confirmed by her son, Stephen Mitchell. Miss Mitchell joined the Communist Party in 1946 when she was just 16 and over her long career worked at the intersection of issues that have come to define the left's agenda for the last 50 years, including feminism, civil rights, police violence, economic inequality, and anti-colonialism. Her rise in the party leadership came at a moment of crisis. The communists had been decimated by the repressive tactics of the McCarthy era, then by the exodus of members disaffected by the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. By the late 1950s, it counted barely 10,000 members, down from its height of about 75,000 in 1947. To find new recruits, the party drew on its roots in radical civil rights activism to appeal to a new generation of black leaders. Ms. Mitchell joined the party's National Committee in 1958. She was its youngest member ever. In the 1960s, she founded an all-black chapter in Los Angeles called the Che Lumumba Club, which quickly became one of the most active in the country. The club's choice of namesakes, the Argentine Marxist Che Guevara and the Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba, pointed to Ms. Mitchell's abiding insistence that the American left had to be rooted in an international matrix of freedom struggles. She traveled widely, meeting fellow leftists in Europe, South America, and Africa, and she was among the first Americans to highlight the plight of Nelson Mandela and the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. By 1968, she was one of the best-known and most widely respected American communist leaders. I don't know of anything that Charlene was involved in where she was not the leader, Mildred Williamson, who met Miss Mitchell at a 1973 anti-apartheid conference in Chicago, said in a phone interview. Ms. Mitchell became the Communist Party's presidential nominee when she was just 38. At its convention in Manhattan, she accepted the nomination below a banner that read, Black and White Unite to Fight Racism, Poverty, War. We plan to put an open occupancy sign on the White House lawn, she declared, and taking a swipe at the pet project of the First Lady Lady Bird Johnson added, 
we propose to put a woman in the house to beautify not only our highways, but to beautify ourselves. Her run for office came four years before the New York Congressman Shirley Chisholm became the first black woman to seek the nomination for presidency from a major party. Though she and her running mate, Michael Zagarell, appeared on just four state ballots and received just over 1,000 votes, her candidacy put a new face on the Communist Party at a time when the student-led New Left was gaining ground in left-wing politics and some party members had grown disillusioned with its uncritical support of the Soviet Union. In contrast to the student movement, which was largely male, middle class, and white, she offered a vision that the left was rooted in the experience of working-class women of color. Among her acolytes was an assistant professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, named Angela Davis. After Dr. Davis was arrested in 1970 for providing weapons used in the killing of a Marin County judge, Ms. Mitchell led her defense committee. Dr. Davis was acquitted in 1972, and Ms. Mitchell used the experience to create the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, a group that, in its focus on police brutality and the legal system, foreshadowed later racial justice movements. Black Lives Matter and modern black feminists stand on the shoulders of Charlene Mitchell. Eric S. McDuffie, a professor of American studies at the University of Illinois, said in a phone interview. Among Ms. Mitchell's many successful campaigns was the acquittal of Joanne Little, a North Carolina inmate accused of murdering a prison guard who had sexually assaulted her. She also lobbied on behalf of the Wilmington Ten, a group of nine black men and one woman, also in North Carolina, who were convicted of arson and conspiracy in 1971 and later exonerated. I don't think I have ever known someone as consistent in her values, as collective in her outlook on life, as firm in her trajectory as a freedom fighter, Dr. Davis said in a 2009 event honoring Ms. Mitchell. Charlene Alexander was born on June 8, 1930 in Cincinnati. Her parents were part of the great migration of black Southerners who moved north in the first part of the 20th century. Her father, Charles, came from Georgia and her mother, Naomi Alexander, from Tennessee. Her marriages to Bill Mitchell and Michael Welch both ended in divorce. Along with her son, she is survived by two brothers, Deacon Alexander and Mike Wolfson. When she was nine, Charlene, her parents, and her seven siblings moved to Chicago, where her father worked as a Pullman porter and a hod carrier. He was also active in the labor movement and served as a precinct captain for Representative William L. Dawson, one of the few black members of Congress. The family settled in Cabrini Homes, a mixed-race public housing development on Chicago's near north side, which was a center of left-wing politics. When she was 13, Charlene joined the local branch of American Youth for Democracy, the youth branch of the Communist Party. By the early 1940s, she was already an activist, helping to lead a protest against a nearby theater, the Windsor, that required black patrons to sit in the balcony. Black and white students attending a matinee simply switched places one day, and the theater dropped its segregation policy soon after. Miss Mitchell studied briefly at Herzl Junior College in Chicago, now Malcolm X College. She moved to Los Angeles in the early 1950s and to New York City in 1968. Although Miss Mitchell remained a committed socialist, she drifted from the Communist Party in the 1980s, especially after the death of Henry Winston, its most prominent black leader in 1986. The party, she came to believe, 
was becoming too focused on class issues at the expense of fighting racial and other injustices. I'm not suggesting that all of a sudden there was racism in the party or that some people were mean or anything like that, she said in a 1993 interview. You had a situation where attention to certain questions that African-American comrades felt were important were downgraded. After the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ms. Mitchell joined more than 100 other party members in calling for the party to reject Leninism and take a more democratic socialist path. In retaliation, the party's longtime general secretary, Gus Hall, froze them out of subsequent national committee meetings. Ms. Mitchell later left the party to help found the Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism, which sought to rebuild the left along more pluralistic lines. She remained committed to the values of the far left and of communism as she understood it. The country's rulers want to keep black and white working people apart, she said in a 1968 campaign speech. The Communist Party is dedicated to the idea that, whatever the difficulties, they must be brought together or neither can advance. That was a reading of the obituary titled, Charlene Mitchell, 92, Dies, First Black Woman to Run for President. It appeared in the New York Times, nytimes.com website, it was written by Clay Risen and was published December 23rd, 2022. The next reading on today's program is from the website msn.com and is a reprint of a story that originally appeared in the Washington Post newspaper on January 2nd, 2023. The title is, White Contractors Wouldn't Remove Confederate Statues, So a Black Man Did. It was written by Gregory S. Schneider. Workers in bright yellow vests circled up in the morning chill. Some clutched cups of Starbucks coffee, a last comfort before beginning the hard work of dismantling a statue of Confederate General A.P. Hill in the middle of an intersection. As a group of Confederate heritage defenders assembled nearby, at least one of them armed, city safety coordinator Miles Jones lectured the work crew on wearing hard hats and eye protection. And who, he asked, would be the site supervisor? A bearded man in Ray-Ban sunglasses and a Norfolk State University sweatshirt stepped forward. What's your name, sir? Jones asked. Devin Henry. Devin Hen? Jones began, then dropped his voice respectfully. Oh, Mr. Henry, of course. The name carries weight in Richmond these days. Over the past three years, as the former capital of the Confederacy has taken down more than a dozen monuments to the lost cause, Henry, who is black, has overseen all the work. He didn't seek the job. He had never paid much attention to Civil War history. City and state officials said they turned to Team Henry Enterprises after a long list of bigger contractors, all white-owned, said they wanted no part of taking down Confederate statues. For a black man to step in carried enormous risk. Henry concealed the name of his company for a long time in long-shunned media interviews. He has endured death threats, seen employees walk away, and been told by others in the industry that his future is ruined. He started wearing a bulletproof vest on job sites and got a permit to carry a concealed firearm for protection. The drama interrupted Henry's careful efforts to build his business. But after removing 24 monuments in Virginia and North Carolina, Henry, 45, 
has grown more comfortable in his role in enabling a historic reckoning with social injustice across the South. The threats haven't let up. Henry has simply learned to live with them. My head's in a different place now, he said. It's like, I'm not scared to cross the street, but I'm always going to look both ways, right? So I'm not totally oblivious to who I am and what I've done, but I'm just not letting fear kind of drive what I do. Over and over, history-minded friends directed Henry to the words of John Mitchell Jr., the civil rights pioneer and editor of the Richmond Planet, a groundbreaking African-American newspaper. In 1890, the year the state erected an enormous statue of Robert E. Lee on what would become Monument Avenue, Mitchell wrote about the resilience of the black person in society. The Negro put up the Lee Monument, Mitchell wrote, and should the time come, will be there to take it down. The call that changed Henry's life came in the middle of a business meeting in early June 2020. He ignored it at first, but his phone kept going off, and finally a friend texted, you might want to pick up. On the line was Clark Mercer, the chief of staff of then-Governor Ralph Northam, with a wild proposition. Would Henry's construction company be willing to oversee the dismantling of the giant statue of Lee on state-owned property along Monument Avenue? Such a thing was nowhere on Henry's radar screen. His company was experienced in building things and at preparing sites for construction. Outside of work, though, change was in the air. Partly in reaction to the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017, the General Assembly had passed a bill early in 2020 to allow localities to take down Confederate statues. That May, the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police touched off nationwide racial justice protests that in Richmond focused on Monument Avenue and its iconic memorials. Northam, a Democrat, decided it was time to act. Protesters and police were clashing every night. He wanted to move fast. Mercer and Henry had met some time before at an event at Norfolk State, Henry's alma mater, where he sits on the board of visitors. Now Mercer confessed that he was reaching out because he was desperate. Everyone else had turned him down. I was pretty forthcoming that we hadn't been able to find anybody to take on the job, Mercer said in an interview. In fact, the responses from other contractors were pretty overtly racist, he said, including language that he found threatening. Devin seemed to understand the magnitude of what I was asking him. Henry never paid much attention to Confederate monuments. Growing up in Hampton and Newport News, he went to Robert E. Lee Elementary School, but the name meant little to him. There were bigger concerns. His mother had been only 16 when Henry was born in Lumberton, North Carolina. She moved to Hampton Roads and took up work in McDonald's restaurants to support herself and her baby. At 14, Devin began taking shifts at McDonald's as well. He got good grades in school and developed an ambition to be a doctor. But after majoring in biology at Norfolk State, Henry found himself drawn to business. After college, he got into the corporate leadership program at General Electric, and the company paid him to get a master's degree as he worked in its infrastructure division. He immersed himself in biographies of business leaders, such as Ray Kroc of McDonald's. His mother, meanwhile, had taken advantage of training programs at McDonald's, climbed the ladder, and then, by the time Henry was grown, became a franchisee. She wound up owning five restaurants in the Richmond area. Her example of hard work pushed Henry. 
When he learned of a small construction business going up for sale in the city of Suffolk, he made a snap decision to leave GE and put all his savings into buying it. Henry and his wife commuted 90 minutes every day from Richmond to Suffolk in separate cars so one could get back and pick up their daughter from school. Over time, Henry expanded the business and relocated it closer to home. He always tried to be socially conscious, becoming a federal emergency management agency contractor to help people in need. In early 2020, one particular job transformed his outlook about what was possible. Team Henry was the general contractor for construction of the Memorial to Enslaved Laborers at the University of Virginia. It was and still today our most meaningful project, Henry said. Winning that job wasn't about the money. It was about the meaning and the response that it would have, giving voice to the voiceless. He attended Charlottesville community sessions to hear people speak about what they wanted the memorial to convey. He picked out the stone and flew to Wisconsin to watch it being cut. Then he carefully fit each piece together into a sweeping circle in honor of people whose lives had been all but erased. Participating in something like that gives you purpose and meaning for your work, he said. So when Mercer called to pitch him on taking down a Confederate monument, Henry viewed it differently than he might have before. He had come to understand that those statues, especially Lee, were like religious objects to their defenders. They had stood more than a century as totems of a powerful mythology, that slavery was somehow benign, that Southerners were the noble victims of Northern aggression, that things were better when white people presided over an orderly world, the lost cause. For a black man to destroy such a symbol would put his life, his family, his livelihood on the line. Henry knew that in Louisiana, a white contractor withdrew from the job removing four Confederate monuments after receiving death threats. Someone torched the man's car. But Henry saw this as a powerful chance to give a bit of justice to the souls represented by the memorial to enslaved people. He wanted to talk with his family and his team at the company before committing. Mercer told him to take a few hours. Henry immediately went home and rounded up his wife and teenage daughter and son. He explained that he had an opportunity that would be somewhat controversial and described it. My son was like, well, Dad, look, you're going to always be my hero, so it doesn't really matter, Henry said. But this would be really cool. The wife and daughter agreed. At work, some employees really didn't like the idea of it at all and were not in favor of us moving forward, he said. Some were more about security, safety. Some just didn't believe in the work. A few who were opposed eventually left the company. But Henry called Mercer back and agreed to it. Once on board, he pushed to act quickly without warning to the public. But as soon as Northam called a news conference to announce that the statue was coming down, a handful of local residents filed a lawsuit to stop him. Court proceedings put the project on ice for more than a year. Within just a few weeks, though, Henry got another call. Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney wanted to take down a whole series of monuments on city property. Bob Steidel, a deputy city administrator tasked with making it happen, had run into the same problem as Mercer trying to find a contractor. Then someone with the state suggested Henry. He was the only one to step up, and I give him all respect for that because in June of 2020, it was a difficult decision to make, Steidel said in an interview. Personally, professionally, he had everything at stake, and he still did it. Once again, Henry had to move fast. His biggest need was finding a crane that could lift the statues. 
He thought he had one lined up in Hampton Roads. But when the company's patriarch found out that his son had tentatively agreed, he threatened to cut the son out of the business, Henry said. Eventually, Henry found a willing crane operator in Connecticut. The next big issue, security. This was all being done on the fly. Protesters and police were facing off on the streets around the statues every night. Virginia's new law allowing the monuments to come down hadn't technically gone into effect yet, and Richmond's acting city attorney refused to give Stoney his blessing. City police didn't want to participate under those circumstances, Stoney said in an interview. Henry used some divine pressure to solve the problem. He attended the same church as Richmond Sheriff Antoine Irving. With the pastor's help, he persuaded Irving to provide about half a dozen deputies to keep watch at the worksite. On July 1, 2020, the first target, a statue of General Stonewall Jackson at an intersection along Monument Avenue, came down amid chaos on a cinematic scale. Through miscommunication, traffic control set up barricades at the wrong intersection. Henry had to maneuver his equipment into place as a handful of deputies struggled to keep traffic at bay. His younger brother showed up to make sure Henry was safe. Thousands of onlookers chanted, screamed, and taunted the bronze figure of Jackson high on his horse. One tearful Confederate defender begged for work to stop. Deputies had to haul him away. As TV cameras carried the scene live nationwide, Henry's men kept trying and failing to get the statue detached from its stone base. And then the heavens poured torrential rain. Stoney, monitoring from a secret location to avoid being served any court papers that might halt the action, kept calling Henry. What was the delay? Henry's mother kept calling with the same question. He quit looking at his phone. Crew members cut a hole in the base of the statue and discovered an underpinning holding it in place. Once that was disconnected, Henry signaled the crane to put some tension on the line. When the statue wobbled, Henry felt a sudden rush of panic. I'm like, oh shit, this is really about to happen, he said. Finally, with church bells ringing and lightning flashing, the crane lifted the statue high into the rainstorm just as a mighty clap of thunder drowned out the roaring crowd. People are crying. People are jumping up and down. I'm going crazy, Henry remembered. At this point, law enforcement had no control. It was 100% chaotic. As the crane lowered the statue to the ground, Henry was awed by the size of the thing. The crowd surged forward. Someone said they wanted to urinate on it. Henry hollered for people to stay back. Then he noticed one African-American looking at him with an expression of utter disgust. Henry said he felt confused. Wasn't she happy at what he had just done? She was like, why are you showing so much care to the statue? Just drop it. Just let it go. Just kick it over. Nobody cared about George Floyd, but you care about the statue? At that moment, Henry realized just how difficult this work was going to be. He resolved to stay professional. I wasn't going to let my feelings or being a black man and knowing what these statues represent get in front of me being a professional and doing my job, he said. Over the next few weeks, Henry and his team moved on to dismantle more than a dozen other monuments around Richmond under a $1.8 million umbrella contract. Though Henry initially concealed his company behind a shell called NAH LLC, as in, nah, these statues need to come down, he said, local observers soon caught on. 
A political rival on the city council accused Stoney of improperly awarding the contract because Henry had donated $4,000 to the mayor's campaign several years before. Investigators found no evidence of wrongdoing. Henry's crew was getting better at its unusual work and was becoming in demand as more and more localities followed suit. He removed the statues of Lee and Jackson in Charlottesville that had been the focus of the white supremacist rally. He took down a statue of Jackson at Virginia Military Institute where someone threw a bag of fried chicken at the workers. He was invited to remove a statue in Shreveport, Louisiana, Henry said, but declined because the work included reinstalling the monument on a battlefield. I wanted no part of that, he said. Fielding threats became routine, from racial slurs shouted by passing vehicles to menacing voice calls. Henry referred all those to the police, who had eventually become close partners. Someone called the crane company and warned that they'd never get back to Connecticut. Callers tried to get the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration to shut down the work sites. Others tried to get the labor union to step in. All the while, Henry was planning for the big one the huge statue of Lee on state-owned property. The Supreme Court of Virginia cleared away the last legal challenge and work was set for September 8, 2021. The day was bright and sunny. Police cleared the vast traffic circle around the monument. Onlookers kept at a distance, danced and sang with the happy air of a street party. Henry rode a bucket truck up alongside the statue as his crew, now experts at this kind of work, quickly removed the boats that secured it to the base. Henry actually slowed the process for a few moments. He needed to give Northam time to get there from the state capitol. Suddenly, Henry felt overcome with emotion. He thought about Jimmy Palmer, a rigger with the crane company who had become a close friend but died of cancer before he could help bring Lee down. He thought about all the elderly black people who had told him they never thought they'd see this day and about how they thanked him for fulfilling Mitchell's vision. It hit me like a bag of rocks, he said. He told the bucket truck operator to take him down. I just started crying. The statue was hoisted off his pedestal in less than an hour after 131 years of towering over Richmond's grandest street. Henry's mother, Frida Thornton, who now lives in South Carolina, ran through the security barricade and surprised her weeping son with a big hug. I just kind of held him for a minute, just to let him get himself together, Thornton remembered. I told him, you did it and God's favor protected you, and it's over. I said, it's over. The work is completed now. There was, of course, one more Richmond statue to come down. The A.P. Hill monument was different because the general's remains were buried beneath it. Court proceedings were moving a grave delayed the project, giving Henry and the city time to plan. In the meantime, Henry said, his business boomed. If some potential clients avoided him because of the statues, more sought him out. We're busier than we've ever been, he said. Team Henry has grown to 200 employees after starting out 15 years ago with just four. The company won recent contracts to build a bank and a credit union and to rehabilitate a structure that once housed enslaved Africans at what's now the Richmond Hill Religious Retreat. He thought about the significance of the Confederate statues. Henry decided he wanted to find a way to turn the destruction into something positive. That led to a venture in which artists of color created digital images of statues being dismantled that can be sold as NFTs with all proceeds going to charities. We want to kind of change the narrative a little bit about the removal and what they mean, Henry said. The 13 Stars Project, a reference to the Confederate battle flag, 
was set to debut in 2022 but stalled when the cryptocurrency market and NFT craze both cooled. Henry said he's ready to launch again. When it came time in early December to finally get the hill removal underway, Henry approached it methodically. From his point of view, there would be little emotion with this one. That was for the Hill relatives and funeral home workers on hand to take care of the general's remains. Henry's mission as the man who finally drove the Confederates out of Richmond was nearly complete. He had a brief blunt message that morning for the chilly workers as they prepared to do the unusual work that has become so familiar. It's the last one, he told them. Let's do it right and get out of here. There are a couple of photographs that go along with the story. One shows Devin Henry sitting at a conference table. His hands are folded, and he's wearing a white Norfolk State University long-sleeve pullover sweater. In front of him on the table sit a couple of cell phones. He's wearing round, tortoiseshell glasses. The caption reads, Henry in the office of his construction company, Team Henry Enterprises. The next image is a picture of a statue. The statue shows a man sitting on a horse. That statue is connected to rigging cables and straps and ropes. At the base of the statue, there are hundreds of people cheering and shouting. The caption reads, People in the crowd rejoice as the crane crew removes the statue of Confederate General Stonewall Jackson from Monument Avenue in Richmond in July 2020. That was a reading of the article, White Contractors Would Remove Confederate Statues. So a black man did it. It was written by Gregory Schneider, and it was published January 2nd, 2023 at the MSN.com website, but was a reprint of a story that originally appeared in the Washington Post newspaper. The next reading on today's African American Hour is about the first African American to win the Nobel Peace Prize. This is from the University of California, Los Angeles' newsroom, and it's newsroom.ucla.edu website. The title is Ralph Bunch, the Absolutely Indispensable Man. It was written by Cynthia Lee and published December 15, 2022. The subtitle to this story is Q&A with Professor Cal Rostiala, capital R-A-U-S-T-I-A-L-A, whose new book illuminates the life and legacy of the only UCLA alumnus to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. When Cal Rostiala first set up his office in Bunch Hall in 2006, the UCLA professor didn't know much about Ralph Bunch, he admits in his new book, The Absolutely Indispensable Man. Ralph Bunch, the United Nations, and the fight to end empire. He knew that Bunch had won the Nobel Peace Prize, the only UCLA graduate to do so, and as a leader at the United Nations, had been one of the few black Americans to rise to the top ranks of mid-century diplomacy. But beyond that, he knew almost nothing about Bunch's brilliant career. With this illuminating, insightful biography, Rostiala fills the gap handily and gives readers a chance to know much, much more about this visionary, courageous internationalist. Rostiala is the Promise Institute Distinguished Professor of Comparative and International Law and Director of the Burkle Center for International Relations at UCLA. Question. In your book, 
You call Ralph Bunch one of the key architects of post-World War II international order. Golda Meir credited him with being the outsider most central to the birth of Israel. At the height of his celebrity, he was lauded as the most honored African-American. But 51 years after his death in 1971, what does the general public remember of Bunch? What was Bunch most proud of having achieved? Answer. Ralph Bunch was once so famous, he handed out the Best Picture Award for the 1951 Oscars. He led a fascinating life. Yet today, outside of a few places, he is largely forgotten. Even here at UCLA, many students know Bunch Hall and the Bunch Center, but don't know much about why we honor him. This is one reason I wrote the book, to introduce Bunch to a new generation, to put his career and accomplishments in context, and along the way, to tell the story of the institution he cared so much about and its greatest success story, the United Nations and the decolonization of much of Africa and Asia. Bunch is best known for his Nobel Peace Prize, but there were two things he would sometimes say he was even more proud of. The first was his role in the invention of United Nations peacekeeping. Peace is mentioned almost 50 times in the UN Charter, but peacekeeping is not. Yet today, in large part thanks to Bunch, it is a central feature of the international order. The second accomplishment he was most proud of we may appreciate more here in Westwood, his three UCLA basketball trophies. Question. Bunch's life path took him from a childhood in South Central Los Angeles through UCLA, Harvard, and Howard Universities to the highest level of global diplomacy. He was, you said, a rare black man in a field that was notoriously pale, male, and Yale. How did he personally deal with racism? Answer. He really began to fight the racial injustice that was so prevalent and overt at the time while in high school. He would later point to his grandmother, a huge influence on his early life, as someone who taught him to stand proud, never back down, and work hard. In this sense, Bunch very much embodied a central strain of thinking in the black community in the early 20th century. He remained active throughout his life in the NAACP and other organizations that fought for equality. He was generally an optimist on most things, including race relations. As time went on, though, his views on American racism grew more anguished. He was both encouraged and troubled by the ferment of the 1960s. Even as someone who once declared himself a professional optimist, he was deeply disheartened by both the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King and by rising interest in black separatism. When the police brutally attacked protesters in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention of 1968, he told Coretta Scott King that this was perhaps good news because now white America will understand what black people have long known. Question. While doing research for his doctoral dissertation at Harvard, Butch worked hard to understand the political relationship created by European colonial rule and how it affected a country's history, politics, and governance. How did those experiences shape his views? Answer. Butch was almost unique in pre-war America for his knowledge of colonial governance in Africa. This is one reason why he was recruited into the early version of the CIA in 1941. They needed an Africa expert as the nation prepared to enter World War II. His fieldwork in French West Africa had a huge influence on his career trajectory. 
For one, it taught him that self-determination would require close supervision of colonial powers and real efforts and real mechanisms to ensure that they actually move their colonies to independence. He also believed, as nearly everyone did at the time, that many colonies were not really ready for independence. But to his credit, he did not think this justified colonial rule. To the contrary, it meant that the international community might need to assist new nations in their transition to freedom. Question. To Bunch, the domination of Europeans over Africans, Asians, and others was a global form of racism. He saw the central question posed by colonialism as a moral one of whether the white man could ever accept darker peoples as equals. How did he make that connection? Answer. Bunch was not alone in seeing colonialism as a form of racial injustice and oppression, but he was unusual in the degree to which he worked both on the domestic and the international fronts of the fight against injustice. Many people in the 1930s believed empire was actually benevolent. Even Bunch at times would say this, but in an article in the UCLA alumni magazine, then called The Southern Alumnus, he wrote critically of European rule in Africa. He strongly believed that tangible benefits, if they even existed, did not justify the rule by one people of another. Equality demanded liberation. Question. One of the consequences of decolonization was civil war. You state that since 1945, the majority of all civil wars in the world have broken out in formerly colonized nations. Did Bunch foresee this consequence? Answer. As new states gained independence, they faced a huge array of challenges, many of which were the direct result of colonialism. Their arbitrary borders and weak governments were often a recipe for political conflict. As a result, Bunch worried as he fought for decolonization that the process of independence could easily be rough and challenging. But the rise of civil war in the post-war era was not really anticipated fully by anyone. Question. How did Bunch shape the United Nations peacekeeping role? Answer. The first peacekeeping mission is often said to have been an observer force put in place in the Middle East in 1948 to assist the United Nations mediators working there, among them Bunch. But the real birth of peacekeeping later came in the Suez Crisis of 1956 when Bunch put together a large armed UN force in Egypt. He corralled troops from many member states. He actually had to turn down offers from around the world. And he helped to invent many key features of UN peacekeeping, such as the use of blue helmets. Question. Bunch is probably best known for winning the 1950 Nobel Peace Prize for his marathon bilateral mediation of the first Arab-Israeli conflict in the 1940s that resulted in armistice agreements. He barely escaped being assassinated. What happened and how did the experience impact his mission? Answer. Bunch was appointed deputy to UN mediator Count Folk Bernadotte, capital F-O-L-K-E, capital B-E-R-N-A-D-O-T-T-E, a Swede as the UN tried to implement its early plan to partition British Palestine into two states. One September day, Bunch found himself stuck in Haifa and late to meet Bernadotte. Bernadotte, a stickler for punctuality, did not wait. As Bernadotte's car drove through Jerusalem, a group of what appeared to be Israeli soldiers stopped the caravan. In fact, they were members of the Stern Gang, 
a dissident Jewish group. They opened fire on the car, killing Bernadotte and the man next to him, whom they thought was going to be Bunch. Bunch and the world was outraged by the assassination. But it was the event that catapulted him into the role of chief UN mediator and, thanks to his negotiating skills, to the Nobel Peace Prize. Question. While his contributions to world peace are celebrated in history books, what role did Ralph Bunch play in the civil rights battle at home? Answer. Bunch was active in the civil rights movement from the beginning of his career. For example, he helped to found the National Negro Congress. He also served as a longtime board member of the NAACP. During his UN career, he would often speak about the need for racial justice, but his position at the United Nations limited what he could do and say. Toward the very end of his life, he again became more active, in particular with Martin Luther King. Bunch was arm-in-arm arm with King at the Selma to Montgomery march and on stage at the March on Washington, D.C. He and King had their differences, in particular, over Vietnam. But as the two black Nobel laureates of their day, they admired each other and worked together closely. Question. Finally, what do you hope to achieve by writing this book? Answer. Ralph Bunch led an extraordinary American life that deserves to be remembered by all of us, especially as Bruins. Mine is not the first biography of him, but it is the first in nearly 25 years, and it is perhaps the one most focused on what was the through line of his career, the fight against empire. I hope this book does justice to his life and underscores the significance of his legacy, both at home and abroad. That was a reading of the article. Ralph Bunch, The Absolutely Indispensable Man. Q&A with Professor Cal Rostiala, whose new book illuminates the life and legacy of the only UCLA alumnus to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. This appeared at the newsroom.ucla.edu website and was written by Cynthia Lee and published December 15, 2022. That's all for this week. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.